The Hamlet Podcast, episode 49. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. Last time, we began this new scene set in Macduff's castle, with Ross giving the news that Macduff has gone and left Lady Macduff and their children behind. Ross exits, and Lady Macduff is left to chat a little with her son. Although this is her only scene in the play, Lady Macduff makes quite an impression. If Macbeth and Macduff have been set up as parallel figures, by extension, so are their respective wives. In fact, we've already had a little echo of this. Lady Macduff told Ross that her husband wants the natural touch. She tells us what she feels her husband lacks. Earlier in the play, Lady Macbeth comparably acknowledged that her husband lacked the wickedness or sense of purpose that would transform his ambitions to achievements. It's grimly ironic that both women are wrong. Lady Macduff is in a bleak mood now as she speaks to her little son, and contemporary editors tend to think that she speaks here in prose. This makes sense, since there's a change of tone now that Ross is gone and she's speaking to such a small boy. She says, Sarah, your father's dead. And what will you do now? How will you live? We discussed Sarah before as a term from a high-status character to someone below them in the pecking order. But in this kind of a context, it's more intimate and even playful. Lady Macduff doesn't actually think her husband is dead, but instead she's testing the mettle of her child and challenging him to think of how he might respond in such circumstances. She asks what he would do now and how he might plan to survive. This is terribly uncomfortable irony given what is to come. The child has no guile at all, and to the question of how he will live without his father, he replies, "'As birds do, mother,' The mother is bemused and asks, What, with worms and flies? She wonders if he plans to live on worms or insects as a bird might. But the child seems to be way ahead of her. He says, With what I get, I mean. And so do they. Birds make do with what they find, and so will the child, he feels. His mother continues, Poor bird, that's never fear the net, nor lime, the pitfall, nor the gin. She's feeling bad for her little son, her poor little bird, since Macduff is away, but she's impressed at how plucky he is. He would never fear any of the traps that endanger little birds like him. She lists the net and the lime, which we discussed way back when Claudius despaired of his limed soul, and then the pitfall and the gin. The latter is a kind of trap set for birds, and a pitfall nowadays almost always used metaphorically, was a trap whereby a pit was dug and then loosely covered so that the prey would fall in and be unable to escape. Again, it's a bit jarring for Lady Macduff to be listing all of the ways in which a little bird might get trapped when she's alone here in her castle with her children. The sun continues to prattle, cleverly extending the images and the wordplay between them, She's exclaimed that he wouldn't fear any of these traps, and he says, Why should I, mother? Poor birds they are not set for. My father is not dead, for all your saying. He changes the meaning of poor. 
She presumably meant pitiable or tiny, and his point is that he's not high enough status for anyone to bother trying to trap him. Poor birds, traps are not set for. And besides, there's nothing to worry about. He's confident that his father is not dead, no matter what his mother says. But rather darkly, she insists. Yes, he is dead. How wilt thou do for a father? She's pressing the point. How will the boy make do without a father? Quick as a whip, he replies with his own question. Nay, how will you do for a husband? The kid is smart enough to know that a widow is just as vulnerable as a child. For all of the genuine danger of such circumstances, the two continue trading these lines. Lady Macduff is quite sanguine. If she's lost her husband, she could find another. She says, Why, I can buy me twenty at any market. And her son cheekily replies, Then you'll buy him to sell again. The idea of finding a husband at the market is quite an inversion. Normally it would have been a bride that was provided as a transaction, with the men doing this business, rather than a woman going and buying herself a man. The boy's wisecrack is a play on words again, suggesting that she'd be as likely to resell them or to deceive them. To be bought and sold is a very old euphemism for hoodwinking someone. This is a candidate for the cheekiest child in Shakespeare, and even his mother acknowledges it. Thou speak'st with all thy wit, and yet, if faith, with wit enough for thee. She's saying that he's probably at the limits of his cleverness now, all thy wit, but that he's pretty smart for such a child. There's a tenderness between them, and room for the heir to settle in the room a little bit before the child asks a rather startling question now. Was my father a traitor, mother? This might seem a bizarre question from the mouth of a babe, but of course this is a play happening in the aftermath, we think, of the most famous treason plot in the history of England. And we've already had talk of traitors and equivocators and so on, but not on stage for a little while now. Here we have a child rather innocently wondering about what a traitor is, and whether his father might be one. Given that Macduff has been rather reticent in his acknowledgement of Macbeth's rule, it's not a bad question to be asking. Does Macduff's behaviour and flight to England constitute traitorous or treasonous activity in this Scotland? Within the context of this scene, rather than perhaps the world in which the play was written, there's also a precedent. Lady Macduff used the word in conversation with Ross. Earlier in the scene, she opined that even if actions do not, our fears can make us traitors. So the child presumably heard this bad and dangerous word and wonders if it really applies to his father. Lady Macduff pulls no punches and answers his question with, Aye, that he was. Yes, he was a traitor. She's still using the past tense as though he's dead, just as the child has. Rather sweetly now, having brought this energy into the room, the child asks, What is a traitor? It's a deft move from the playwright, having the child up the ante but then have to ask for an explanation of this grown-up word he's been using. Lady Macduff is very forthright in her answer. Why, one that swears and lies. 
For her, this treachery need not be a political or a national thing. The breaking of any oath is enough. The son has more to ask. And be all traitors that do so? Is anyone who swears and then lies a traitor? And the mother answers frankly. Every one that does so is a traitor and must be hanged. We probably shouldn't forget that this is still a woman who is angry at her husband for swanning off, she thinks, and leaving her. Whether this is a civics lesson or a threat for her son, she insists that anyone who swears and lies is indeed a traitor, including Macduff, who's broken his promises to her and left her alone. And so even Macduff should have the traditional punishment and be hanged. The son has all the questions, it seems, and he continues... And must they all be hanged that swear and lie? Lady Macduff is unmoving. She replies, every one. The child is more concerned with logistics than the threat of executions, and he now asks, who must hang them? Already we get a sense that this child knows that there are a lot of people in the world who might swear and lie. Lady Macduff suggests an answer. Why, the honest men. If it's a question of honest versus traitor, this makes some sense. But the kid runs rings around his mother's logic, and he exclaims, Then the liars and swearers are fools, for there are liars and swearers enough to beat the honest men and hang up them. This seems rather cynical for what we are to believe is quite a young child. He's saying that any liar or swearer who lets himself be hanged by an honest man is a fool, since there are far more liars in the world. They should all be able to gang up and hang the honest men, since they outnumber them by so many. For someone who's grown up in a remote castle in Scotland, and is as young as we think he is, this child is remarkably worldly. His mother is amused. Now God help thee, poor monkey, but how wilt thou do for a father? It is very much on her mind that Macduff is gone for the foreseeable future, and so she is herself wondering what they're going to do. She asks her little monkey what he will do now in the absence of a father. Again, this quick-tongued child has a smart answer. He says, If he were dead, you'd weep for him. If you would not, it were a good sign that I should quickly have a new father. If Macduff were dead and the kid doesn't seem to be very convinced that he is, then Lady Macduff would be weeping for him. But she's not weeping, so he's probably not dead. And besides, even if his father were indeed dead, and his mother was still not weeping, that would probably be a sign that she was perhaps not terribly sad, perhaps because a replacement husband, and therefore a replacement father, was already on the horizon. If he were dead, you'd weep for him, if you would not, it were a good sign that I should quickly have a new father. Lady Macduff can do little but laugh at this. She says, Poor prattler, how thou talkst! Again, this precocious child has such a surprising wit and such cheeky answers. It's quite an amazing little scene. Even his mother has to acknowledge how sharp he is and how much he talks. Shakespeare has woven topical politics, wordplay, family dynamics and a little mystery into this scene between mother and son. 
There are echoes of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and the terrible contrast of seeing Lady Macduff in her castle with her children. The son is the only one who actually speaks, but we need to get the impression that there are multiple children, although it's certainly not a case of the more the merrier. Quite the opposite, indeed. This scene is a total distraction, and, indeed, the more engaging the little boy is, the more interesting the dynamic and the conversation between him and his mother, the better. Because, of course, Macbeth already told us the plan for everyone in this castle, and his people are about to appear any minute. But this has been such a surprising and tender interlude, we'll save the dreaded knock at the door for the next episode. I'll be sure to put details of Lime and Pitfalls and Syrah in the show notes for this episode, available, as always, at thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.